Welcome to the Nottingham Business School Business Leaders Podcast, where business leaders tell their stories and share their insights. All our guests have a personal connection with Nottingham Business School. So listen, learn, enjoy and share. Shamshad Ahmed is CEO of Smart Sales International first British company to offer parents the opportunity to store blood from their newborn baby's umbilical cord. Since he started the business 20 years ago, families have used stem cells taken from stored blood to treat illnesses including genetic disorders, blood disorders and brain infections. And the stem cells are frozen for 25 years so families could benefit from medical advances long into the future. The company now has offices all over the world including the UAE and Hong Kong. Shamshed Ahmed, joining us today from your office in Dubai. Thank you for being our guest on the NBS Business Leaders Podcast. Mike, it's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for inviting me. So how is the uh, weather in Dubai this morning, or should I say this afternoon? <laughs> a little bit different to the UK, I have to say. It's, uh, I think the months of January, February, March are the ideal months to be here. Excellent. So it was back in 2001 that you founded Britain's first private company offering parents the opportunity to store blood from their newborn baby's umbilical cord. How did that all come about? Well, it came about because prior to uh, establishing smart cells, I spent 10 years in uh, the world of clinical research um, doing drug trials for pharmaceutical companies. I'm not a, I'm not a scientist, but uh, 10 years of clinical research enabled me to become what I call a lay scientist. So I wasn't um, afraid of science or medicine. I embraced it. I enjoyed reading about it. While I was conducting those trials, I came across stem cells as well as a future method of treatment, really, for a wide variety of illnesses. So how does the process of collecting blood from a baby's umbilical cord work? We are targeting expectant parents and they'll find out about us through a variety of methods, whether it's online, uh, referrals from their friends, maybe the obstetrician recommending us or various other channels that we work with. And um, typically what we'll do is we'll send them a collection box, uh, which they take with them at the time of delivery. So they'll pay us an initial fee. They'll take this specially created box with them. And at the time of birth, the um, well, in, in the UK case, it'll be a phlebotomist that comes in and collects the cord blood and cord tissue because in the NHS, most midwives will not collect the blood or tissue because they feel that's not within their remit um, and it's not part of the birth process. So we are forced to then send private phlebotomists at all hours of the day to go in and collect the cord blood and cord tissue. This is then packed according to our instructions and then a courier will then collect the sample and deliver it to our laboratory, which is currently positioned near Heathrow Airport. We then will process the cord blood, extract the stem cells from that, and we will then store those stem cells for that family. Uh, similarly with the cord tissue, which has a different type of stem cell compared to the cord blood, uh, we also um, store the cord tissue as well. Now, these stem cells are, are, are used to treat you know, up to 100 illnesses, uh, are diabetes, blood disorders, brain infections, and then there are cosmetic processes such as facelifts that they can be used with as well. What do, what do your customers typically use the cells for? The cord blood stem cells contain what you we refer to as hemopoietic stem cells. These are primarily used for blood disorders, so to certain cancers, and we've done transplants for leukaemia, for example. 
they're also used for genetic disorders. Uh, we've done a number of transplants, particularly in the Middle East region, for things like thalassemia and also sickle cell. Also used for metabolic disorders. And recently, in the last three or four years, we've been doing increasingly more and more for brain disorders and brain infections, such as uh, cerebral palsy and also HIE. Um, I do need to mention here, in the case of cerebral palsy, we've seen significant partial recovery, so I'm not making claims that we're going to fully, the child will be fully recovered, but certainly in terms of improved cognitive function, hands clenched now open, eyes stopped flickering, an ongoing improvement is being seen. And uh, we also released our first sample for autism uh, a few months ago, which again is purely uh, experimental. But let's wait and see, because this is the whole promise that we offer. You just don't know what you may use these stem cells for. These are potentially life-saving processes. It's obviously a very serious business, but it's also quite a controversial topic. Lots of lots of hospitals have in the past refused to cooperate, haven't they? Yes, they have. And they refuse to cooperate, particularly in the early days, because the positions taken by the Royal Body, such as the Royal College of Obstetrician and Gynaecology, the Royal College of Midwives, was not very supportive they felt that there was insufficient evidence to support everyone storing their own umbilical cord by stem cells and cord tissue. Uh, there's also some politics involved because there are people do have the option of donating their stem cells at birth. If you go to one of a handful of hospitals in the UK, which I completely support, by the way, I think there should be a donation option and there should be also an option for people to privately store their stem cells. What's uh, the difference between that and what you offer? If you donate, it goes into a public bank and it's not going to necessarily be there when you need it. And it goes on to an international bank. Secondly, also, if you're from a mixed race couple or if you're non-Caucasian, it's very difficult to find a match in these banks because traditionally they don't donate. Uh, and um, so it's even more imperative that people from those backgrounds do store their own stem cells for, uh, when, children, when the child is born. The, the issue is, though, if you if you go to, I don't know, Chelsea, Westminster Hospital, they don't offer a donation option. Only some hospitals do because they have to set up the operational side to deal with it. And they haven't got the wherewithal or the staff to actually go around collecting donated samples. So unless you go to one of, you know, half a dozen hospitals around the UK, you can't donate anyway. So how have you overcome that resistance? Uh, we've overcome it by providing evidence to them over the years that, listen, these stem cells are being used. I mean, to date, it's well over 50,000 cord blood stem cells have been used for transplant use around the world. So you can't now say it's a waste of time and it doesn't work. I mean, the fact is the transplants we've done, we've successfully released all of them. We've done our job. OK, the numbers are not as high as I'd like. But the whole point of this is for the future, that in the future, we're going to find more and more applications for these stem cells. So I think it's been a process of educating these people, particularly in the medical field, regards to obstetricians with midwives. You know, we have now actually managed after a number of years to sign up agreements with some hospitals uh, where actually they'll take a fee for any samples that's collected. Because my view is, why should I pay a phlebotomist when I can pay the midwifery educational fund at XYZ Hospital, um, and also then not have to charge the customer the phlebotomy with me, and I can cover that that fee myself. And some hospitals do, and some hospitals don't. Is there any yeah. thread there, or is it just no, individual no, personalities? To totally random, to be honest. It depends on, you know, the mood of the director of midwifery, 
how anti-private companies they are, you know, because don't forget, it goes against their grain because if we're charging the customer a fee, it goes against the grain of the NHS that it should be available to everybody. You also mentioned in there that that the benefits are growing because obviously you store the cells for 25 years. Medical advances mean that the opportunities will increase over a period. Might there be a chance of replacing, for example, lung tissue damaged by COVID? Well, it's interesting you mentioned that because I referred earlier to the fact that the cord blood, uh, which are hemopoietic stem cells, were used for the indications that I mentioned, but the cord tissue uh, contain what we uh, what are mesenchymal cells. These are made used more for regenerative purposes. So they are capable of replacing damaged areas, such as let's say you've had a knee injury, um, shoulder injury, you mentioned the lungs. And in the last few months, there has been some extensive work which demonstrated the success of using mesenchymal stem cells to replace damaged tissue in the lungs once you've had COVID. So in fact, what you're doing by injecting those stem cells towards the lungs, you are then replacing the damaged lung tissues. And that's research that's going on at the moment? Yes, it's going on. It's very promising. And um, it's to get another indication of potential, another use of stem cells. Smart Cells now has one of Britain's biggest private blood banks of stem cells, but you yourself don't have a medical background. I think what I do, I surround myself by people who are experts. I mean, like, for example, our scientific director, Dr. Anne Smith, who's been with us for the last eight years, she spent over 20 years working at the Royal Marsden as a scientific director there and also the head of the lab. The reason I mentioned Royal Marsden, it released the most number of samples for cord blood stem cells for those patients with cancer in Europe. So, you know, I've got people around me that are experts in their field. And obviously I've got scientists and people like that if I need uh, any assistance. So you've built up a team then? Absolutely. I mean, I mean, my, I mean, I, I'm never afraid to say I don't know the answer. I'd have to go and ask somebody and come back to you. But obviously after 20 years, I've learned a lot. Uh, but in the beginning, certainly, you know, I think that's one of the lessons you learned that, you know, you, we've all got different skills. And they, I, I'm a, an entrepreneur, I'm a businessman, and the people that I employ don't have those skills. In, in that vein, you started your career after you graduated from Trent uh, as a banker. So what did that teach you? Actually, I started off uh, before that at, at DuPont as, as a management trainee. So I spent a couple of years there. Uh, in a sort of finance-related function, and then I moved to banking after that. And I, th I think the things that, you know, being an employee of two very large organisations taught me, you know, they taught, you know, firstly, the discipline of turning up for work, interacting with people from all sides of different backgrounds and uh, different positions, and also adhering to deadlines, I suppose. But to be perfectly honest with you, I didn't particularly enjoy being an employee. And nor was I particularly, you know, good at corporate politics as well. You know, so I, I knew, you know, <laughs> my time was going to be limited in this world. But you went from banking into clinical research. You set up drug trials for big pharmaceutical companies. So banking to pharma, how, how did that come about? When I was 27 years old, I got married to my wonderful wife, Femina, who at the time was an economist at NatWest Bank. So her parents at the time thought, OK, She's marrying a, you know, a nice banker, good, good arrangement, et cetera. And then as soon as I got married, I said, Femina, that's it. I'm done now. I can't, you, you, you got the job, you carry on. I'm going to go and I'm going to go and play now and experiment. 
And uh, and she you was know, happy I, about that. Um, well, I, I, I think she took advice from her father, and he said, "Listen, if he's going to do it, now is the right time to do it, to take these risks, etc." So I went off and I did all sorts of things when I was studying at Nottingham Trent in my it was a sandwich course. And in the third year, I went off and did my six months in Pakistan, in Karachi. And um, I worked for a textile company at the time. And I remember being fascinated by these agents coming from all over the world, from, you know, Galley Lafayette and Carrefour and John Lewis and buying textiles and, and leading a fairly glamorous life as agents, shall we say. And I thought, oh, that looks fun. So actually, when I left Citibank and I started, that's one thing I started doing. Uh, in terms of exporting cotton-based products like bathrobes, towels, trying to find orders for them, etc. And, and and I did that, failed miserably uh, because I made all these classic errors of goods arriving at the port and I was dealing with wholesalers who would then hold me to ransom and said, look, we're not going to ask for a release unless you give us another discount and not going to give you any money and all those kind of stuff. So it was a, it was a big rude awakening, went into retail, the old pound shop concept was coming along then. I, I did that with a, another friend of mine who was actually a physician and just finished medicine and didn't want to do medicine anymore. So we went into retail not having any idea about retailing. And it wasn't until my daughter was born then in 1993, I said, listen, I better get a bit more serious and more focused. And then a friend of mine approached me and he was joining a family firm that was a clinical research company. And he said, oh, Sham, but because what I did enjoy doing was selling. I thought I was a reasonable good salesman. So he encouraged me to join this clinical research company in Slough. And I said, look, forget it. I said, there's no fit between me and science. I mean, I couldn't even switch on my Bunsen burner in my chemistry lessons. You know, it's not happening. But he cajoled me and convinced me to join. And I did. And actually, I found, and in those days, in the early 90s, more and more pharmaceutical companies were thinking of outsourcing their work. It was still quite new. But I did find that, you know, if I got my head down, I was a good door opener. So I could open the door, but I couldn't close the door because I needed my team of experts around me. So I, I did that uh, for a couple of years, let my trade, so to speak. And then I left them. And then I, we set up our own company with some people I'd met in Switzerland. And over that was a, an amazing journey because over um, a period of time, we uh, went from one hospital unit with 20 beds to five hospitals in Switzerland, in Germany, in Poland, in France, uh, doing early phase drug trials for pharmaceutical companies. You've had a very interesting path into your business, uh, into uh, where you've been. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, I mean, I, I even got a first taste of litigation because the uh, clinical research company I first worked for, when they found out I was leaving, they took me to court because uh, the restraint of trade, you know, I can't work for a competitor. So that that was also a, an interesting experience going to court, being, being taken to court by my employers because I wanted to set up on my own. But eventually you ended up setting up on your own in yeah. 2001, Smart Sales yeah. International, and your business has been very successful over the last two last two decades. What wrong turns have you taken? What what, what mistakes have you learned from in the, in those 20 years? Wow, where do you want me to begin? I mean, in the early days, for example, due to a lack of resources and funding, I used to outsource a lot of the activities. And, you know, like, for example, the entire finance function, 
I mean, I should have had a financial controller from day one, you know, which when I eventually did do that, it was a breath of fresh air. Secondly, also, I continued to outsource the lab function uh, for the first three years uh, because I didn't have a lab. I was working in collaboration with another laboratory in Europe. And then after those three years, when I should have set up my own lab, uh, another company in the UK approached me and basically needed my business for them to set up the lab. So I, I agreed to that at a time when I should have been controlling my own supply chain entirely. And, uh, and ironically, despite giving them almost 80% of their revenue, they turned against me and tried to steal my distributors and become a competitor. So, so do you think that controlling your own supply chain is, is of paramount importance? Uh, I think in my sector it is because you get taken more seriously. In my particular sector, I think you are regarded more as a Premier League player as opposed to a lower league if you don't have your own lab. And also from a purely financial perspective, uh, the cost savings are substantial uh, if you have your own laboratory and it allows you to expand and offer other services as well. I think also things like not investing in the right systems from the beginning, like a, you know, a solid CRM system, and a good IT infrastructure, not recruiting amazing people. I didn't consider it to be as important. I mean, the biggest lesson I've learned is the value of getting the right people in your team and to move from an I mentality to a we one. I, you know, the, one, of the, one of my weaknesses is that, you know, I try and control everything and um, not get the right people. And I make too many decisions in isolation, which if I had the right people around me, I might have been prevented from doing that. And and and, and is that is that one of your achievements that, that's most surprised you, your ability to go from, from that I mentality to the we mentality, or have there been others? Well, that we is still in work in progress, believe it or not, because if you, <laughs> if you ask other people within the organisation, okay, uh, but I've got a lot better with it. And also I've created a business I feel is not entirely dependent on me because I've got some good people in place, you know. I think the other area that I uh, learned from was using friends and family for investment. You did or you didn't? Are you sure? I did. No, I, I did in the early days. I, I got uh, in 2003 or four. I, I, I basically had to get some funding and uh, I raised um, about a quarter million pounds from friends and family. I should have been more strategic and gone for smart money as opposed to what they call stupid money. Uh, because those shareholders turned against me eventually, were not, should we say, professional investors, and they were unrealistic in terms of what they felt the company was going to be worth and things like that. It turned out to be quite acrimonious at a time when I had to then buy them out, actually, and at the same time wanted to build a lab in 2009. I did have an advisor at the time, and he said, listen, Sham, Shah, you can do one thing. You can either build your lab or buy out the shareholders. And if you do both, you're going to go bust. So anyway, I did both, and, um, and it was a challenging year in 2009, shall we say, trying to hang on to my reins, steer the business through some very choppy waters, um, you know, because at the time the financial crisis also hit then. But I, I'd gone for gold, I'd bought them out, got rid of them, and also built a lab, you know, so that expenditure basically wiped me out, and I had to almost restart again and rebuild again at the time. Which of your achievements overall has surprised you most? I think the fact that I've lasted 20 years in this business and, uh, and, and I'm, I think I'm correct in saying I think I'm the only uh, private cord blood bank that is still 100% owned by its founder. The rest have changed hands or merged or 
private equity firms have bought them, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, um, so in a way, I'm quite surprised. I'm still at the helm 20 years on, but that's a positive and negative. If I had got other equity partners in or whatever, I could have grown the business a lot more and made it a lot bigger than what it is today. Do you, do you think there's a further opportunity for growth? Yes, but I think there is a case for disruption now in the market. I mean, one of the challenges we have, like for example, in the UK, we charge about two and a half thousand pounds up front, and then we charge an annual fee as well. And everyone seems to have this upfront model. The company business really should be a recurring revenue business model. And I think we managed to put that in place in the UK. But in places like the Middle East, for example, it's quite difficult to have a recurring revenue model because it's a, a you know it's a transient population. They keep moving all the time and uh, trying to get you know a hundred pounds a year out of them is more challenging than it sounds. But I think there is definitely a case for disruption from a pricing perspective that we somehow find a way to charge less money up front. By that I mean sort of circa five hundred or so, and then charge more money on an annual basis, where even if it's two hundred pounds a year, because people don't mind that then so much. But I think upfront, you know, you're having a baby, you're first time parents, even though we offer installment plans so they can spread the payments over a number of months. Uh, I, I think it needs disruption in that in, in that space. And one of the things you do now is mentor other young entrepreneurs. Um, you've, you've taken us through your career. What do you tell them that you know now that you wish you'd known when you were starting out? Uh, I think uh, I, I alluded to this before, adopting a we as opposed to an I mentality. Uh, I've noticed that young people, they sort of, again, they become quite control orientated, um, the ones I've met, etc., and are not willing to let go. And, and also to get the right team around them to make decisions, especially in financial areas. I think that's crucial. The ones I've seen, and they've failed as well, to be frank with you. They've made a, had a, made a reasonably good staff at raising money, and in some cases, it's been quite easy for them to raise money because they tell a good story. And I always say it's always easy in the beginning to raise money because you're just telling a story. Uh, once you start the business and the reality sets in, then it's a different story altogether because you, now you've got numbers and, you know, you've got some traction. But at the same time, do not give away equity too freely. I, I was guilty of that and uh, I could have taken a debt option, which would have been much more appropriate at the time. Uh, because I didn't want a huge amount of money. Um, but yeah, so be careful about how much equity you give away, particularly in the beginning, and perhaps consider other options of raising money. What single piece of advice might you give to, say, students graduating from Nottingham Business School this year? Assuming that most of the students graduate in their 20s, I think it's all about taking action and working hard. And um, I mean, if you focus on activity, uh, success will present itself at the right time and when you deserve it. I, I find that a lot of young people now want everything too quickly. You know, they have unrealistic expectations. Overthinking is a disease uh, and overanalyzing as well. You know, and don't try to get all your ducks in line from day one. Uh, you will make mistakes and you will learn from them and you need to move on. Otherwise, you spend all your time overthinking, overanalyzing, you know, producing projections till you're blue in the face. I mean, I just find this whole area of projections and 
budgeting a total waste of time. I don't think how you can project beyond a year in in, in, in any business, you know, and, uh, you know, being asked to do five-year projections and all the rest of it, I just think it's, it's pie-in-the-sky stuff. So your advice would be to don't overthink it, just go for it. Yeah, uh, because things happen. It's all about activity. Shamshad Ahmed, thank you very much indeed for joining us on the NBS Business Leaders Podcast. My pleasure, and thank you for the opportunity. If you enjoyed this episode, then why not check out some of the others that are also available, including those with the MD of Rally, Lee Kidger, the billion-pound procurement man, Jonathan Sims, and the big personality behind the big success of Saint-Tropez, Judy Narka. The Nottingham Business School Business Leaders Podcast is produced for Nottingham Trent University by Celtic Tiger Productions. Your presenter was Mike Sassy, and your producer was John Collins.